Hello and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. This is Joy Clark. Today on the Case Podcast, we will talk about legacy software and immutable architecture. My guest today is Chad Fowler, who is a CTO at Microsoft. Welcome to the show, Chad. Hello, thanks. Um, so we want to talk about legacy software um, today. Uh, is this something that interests you? It is, yeah. I've been talking about this topic for a few years now. I'm guessing that it may not be the most exciting way to start the podcast, but I promise it'll be more interesting than what most people think of when they think of legacy software. But the the idea here is uh, not so much working on old yucky software, but how we create software that can live a long, healthy life and actually create a legacy in software. Um, what's some way that you can do that? Uh, well, if, if you maybe I should I, I should talk a bit about what legacy means and and how I came to this area of interest. Uh, I came into the software industry via music. Um, in fact, via is probably not even the right way to say it. But I was a musician. I was trained as a musician, and I got interested in software. And as a musician, the, the word legacy means something really nice. Um, you know, you look at famous musicians. Um, from history, they have left a legacy of their work. You know, Beethoven has left a legacy, and we all know what Beethoven is, John Coltrane and jazz. And it's true in, in art and fashion and pretty much every industry except for software, when we use the word legacy, we're using it to describe something good. So I got into software, and that word legacy that has always meant something nice suddenly means something bad in the software world. Uh, and and I started thinking about why that is. It's because old systems are bad systems, usually. And not only that, old systems are bad systems that die. And, and that strikes me as a pretty sad concept because most of us spend, as software developers, we spend our lives building things that are going to pretty soon die and have to be thrown away, have to be disposed of. And when, when they are thrown away, other software developers are going to come around and call them quote-unquote legacy systems as a pejorative. Uh, and they're going to hate those systems. So it's just this weird, sad cycle of useless, thrown-away work and, uh, in effect, useless, thrown-away parts of software developers' lives. How long does it take for a piece of software to be considered legacy software, usually? Uh, it depends, you know, like there's the, the idealist, um, software engineer version would be as soon as you write code, it's legacy code, which is sort of true because as soon as you write code, it's something you have to maintain, something you have, you have to work around and consider as you develop. Um, in my experience, just very unscientifically, it seems like after five years or so. Um, a lot of business systems end up being referred to as the negative version of legacy software and plans start coming underway to replace them. So is it a given that my application will eventually need to be replaced? I hope not. Uh, <laughs> and, well, no, it is not a given. Um, it is statistically likely, I would say, but mm -hmm. it is not a given. Um, I mean, I don't know. I would guess that eventually, over tens of years, 
there may be no chance that the hardware that it ran on before could work. Uh, so it may be that the the manifestation of your application will have to be replaced. Um, but the way that I think of legacy software and and really the the metaphor that I've created for myself for bringing software into the future is uh, software become it, it gets this name legacy, this negative name legacy because it's hard to change. And if something is hard to change, eventually you have to just replace it because you're going to need to change the function of it somehow because business requirements change or you find bugs or things get slow and you need to you need to speed them up, all sorts of reasons. So if the system itself can't change, you have to replace the system. So I believe that software developers in general uh, develop a sort of fetish for code, which may sound like a ridiculous thing to say because we're software developers, so of course we're into code. But when I say that, I mean that they develop a, a fixation on the actual um, text that you type into the editor and the way that's organized. And they do that sometimes at the expense of thinking about and creating a decent system. Now, it may sound like I'm going fully off topic now from your question, but uh, it is not a given that your system will have to be replaced. It is probably a given, though, that large portions or maybe all of your code will eventually need to be replaced. But in, in my opinion, that is okay, as long as you've created a system that can move forward with the changing needs of the environment around it. It's okay to replace code itself. In fact, it's beneficial to do that. So as a software developer, should we have a change in, um, uh, in, in our thought, I guess? Um, I think it could be difficult to kind of change the focus because we're developing software, so that's all we can um, yeah. yeah, it's like it's like your your value is typing stuff into the editor. Yeah, that's what you're saying, right? And if if that's how you measure yourself, then you're going to feel kind of weird if you're throwing away the stuff that you type into the editor exactly. regularly. Especially if you spend like you said five years developing this, you've poured out your soul into your software for five years, and then someone's like, um, "We're going to throw it away." I can imagine that would be difficult. Um, yeah, definitely. And so that's the key, like. If someone has to come along and throw away the whole thing at once, that feels pretty bad. It also feels bad for the person who has to do it. Um, I've spent a lot of my career doing that. But if instead you're throwing away tiny bits at a time, you know, a function here or there or a small service or a class or whatever here or there and replacing it with a new one, it feels like an upgrade to the system. And in, in fact, it is an upgrade of the system because you're throwing away a small component. Um, I, I didn't actually finish. I mentioned the word metaphor, but I didn't say what the metaphor was. Um, the metaphor that I use that inspires my thinking around all of this is biology. And I'm pretty clueless when it comes to biology, I have to admit, because, you know, I'm a music major and naturally uninterested in science. Um, I guess because I'm from Arkansas. I don't know. But uh in, in biology, we've all heard this concept that, uh, about cellular regeneration, and we use it to say, like, you know, the two of us as adults are not actually the same physical material that we were when we were children. Somehow, though, we are the same humans. 
and the system of the body continues, but cells are are dying and being reborn, you know, billions a second. It's a, a pretty remarkable thing. If you apply that sort of idea to software systems, you come up with some pretty interesting properties, one of which is if you want something to not become static and stuck and then eventually die, it has to be constantly changing and evolving. Um, but then you think, okay, if something is going to be like forced or you're going to force destruction on components of a system, you can't do that and not be designing the system to, to work well with that sort of a, a flow of work. Because if you do, it would just be too disruptive. I mean, that's kind of why we end up with this pejorative of legacy systems. Imagine going to a legacy system and saying, you have to replace 10% of this system every week while you're working. It would not work. You know, you mm -hmm. would need yeah. sometimes six months to replace 10% of the system. So should we try to create code that can be reused? Should we try to create libraries that we can use in other projects? Or is that approach not a good idea? Uh, I don't think we should try, no. Part of me wants to say it depends, but I realize that's the answer to every question in software development. But no, I think as a rule, you should not try to create reusable code. Um, that said, it might be possible to do that. Really, what you should do is you should tr you should cr try to create a system that is inherently changeable. Mm -hmm. And I think our approaches to creating reusable code are sometimes an attempt to do that. So, like, you know, maybe you've been on an, on a project where you say, "Ooh, this little library could be pulled out and be like open sourced," mm -hmm. and you know, developers love that; it's fun. But then you write a bunch of documentation, and you know, you you publish it on GitHub or whatever. Um, part of the benefit, though, that I think a lot of us have in mind and maybe never even really vocalize is when you open source something, you create a very clean interface to it. Mm -hmm. And and that means that you're creating pretty strict boundaries to the thing. And when you have strict boundaries and clear interfaces, especially when you've committed to the open source world that these are going to be the boundaries and the APIs, it sort of locks you into this situation where you feel like you can't change the API anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds like stasis, uh, which maybe immediately sort of feels weird, like you've gotten yourself stuck. But there is a possible benefit to it, which is now the API is unchanging and APIs are one way that you communicate a system, mm -hmm. which means the code can change behind the APIs. So in effect, if you create uh, reusable libraries in that kind of a way, maybe you're, if, you do it, if you do it right, you might be creating a system ultimately that's easier to change and can live longer. Um, in my experience, though, most developers don't do that, especially when they they follow the the siren song of reuse and they just start creating reusable libraries throughout their you know, existing uh, internal enterprises. Um, the the downside and what what is more likely to happen is the libraries are created in such a way that they create additional coupling instead mm -hmm. of removing coupling. And if you think about um, architectural issues that influence whether you can change a system, 
Coupling is probably the most important one. And coupling with with reusable libraries can be that maybe the APIs aren't strict enough and they expose too much so that you can reach in and uh, see things that should be encapsulated from the outside so that you're stuck with uh, legacy implementations, old implementations of code, of libraries. Or it might even be things like versioning. Like, you know, we use this library across all of our services and our front-end applications. And whenever we need to change the library, because of the way it works, we have to deploy it to all of those services at the same time. That's never a good thing because that results in you not changing it ever because you're afraid to. So uh, I'm afraid that if we try to create reusable libraries, we are more likely going to create problems for ourselves and get ourselves stuck than we are going to solve any problems. Yeah, I think like, uh, but for some things like, like the example in my head is for authentication um, protocols and that sort of thing, um, where I might not be an expert at OpenID Connect. And so I use a library for that. Um, if I were yeah. to do that yeah, myself, the then it probably wouldn't be a good idea. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, but I also think there are different ways to look at that. So um, when I was CTO of Wonderlist, we built this pretty crazy backend system with tons, like way too many microservices for, and not really way too many, but that's what people would think from, you know, for implementing a to-do app. Um, and we made a rule for ourselves on the backend that there would be no reusable libraries. And um, the question immediately becomes like, well, how do you do logging and how do you do authentication and that sort of stuff? And what we ended up doing was for a lot of the things that you would normally create a reusable library for, we would create reusable services for. And the services would call those services. Now, that sounds kind of silly when you're talking about logging because it's really high volume. So you might think, well, this is not going to perform well. And, and the fact is, of course, each call does not perform well compared to an in-memory implementation of a logging library. But there are ways around that. And, and for a lot of these sorts of services that were um, really high volume and needed to perform extremely well, we, we created them so that we could deploy them on the same physical hardware as every other service. So whenever a service needed to do logging, it would just log to localhost via a very simple protocol that there's no need to create a reusable library to implement. And then the service would do all the right stuff on localhost underneath it and shuttle it off somewhere else. So I think um, a couple of comments about that. One is that the boundary about when you can create reusable services versus libraries is further into the service territory than most people would guess mm -hmm. because they have a lot of preconceived notions about performance and stability that maybe aren't correct. Um, the other is when, when we create reusable services like that, it becomes much easier to change them um, because for one, you can change them at once by just deploying the service and then everything that uses the service is now updated. You don't have to go deploy every every dependent application and service. Uh, the other and probably the more important one 
when you create separate services that talk to each other via, for example, TCP or UDP, um, tight coupling is harder to do than loose coupling. So the path of least resistance is just call the API as intended and it's just gonna, it's gonna do its thing and you're not gonna have tight coupling. It would actually be harder to tightly couple and reach into the implementation of the service uh, and require extra work from the developers. So I'm, I believe in trying to set things up so that the, the lazy answer is also the right answer. Um, so if you have so many small services that talk to each other, how can you ensure that they don't become dependent on each other? Hmm. I, I don't know if I have a good answer to how to ensure they can't be dependent on each other, but I can tell you that architecturally, the way I think of services, uh, of these sorts of service architectures where you have you know hundreds of small services, is that there is usually one call flow from top to bottom. And if services end up having to split off and call each other sort of side to side in the process and create any, any, um, any chance for like a circular dependency, then you're doing it wrong. So, um, I think that ends up resulting in a philosophy and and then an implementation around how much should be duplicate and how much should just and how much should be extracted into services. So you know, if you had like I don't know, a stupid example, some sort of specific string formatting you do that many of your services have to implement, if you end up having to call out to that, and it has to call out to something else that might be worse than just duplicating the logic in your services. Um, but but I can say that without knowing exactly what the mental framework is for it, most of the services that I would create in terms of a dependency chain or graph uh, don't cycle in any way. They just go straight through and maybe they call one thing off to the side here or there, but typically um, things are sort of aligned by domain. So you don't have those, those sorts of complex dependencies. How can I test a system that's, you described a system that's made up of hundreds of different services. How can I test a system like that? It's very difficult to test a system like that. Um, it's very, very easy though to test each component. So that's nice. Um, it's also not hard to uh, test the way a system like that talks to itself, you know, the way the components talk to themselves. And one thing I haven't really said is if you're going to create a system that's sort of like radical microservice architecture like this, you must create a conventional or standardized approach to how components talk to each other. Um, there needs to be a, a framework for that. And I don't mean like, you know, a framework you download in a jar, but um, a framework in terms of a documented, agreed upon way that services talk to each other. Um, that would include not just like, do I use HTTP or some other protocol? And do I use JSON? But also, how do I authenticate these requests? And what do I measure at every point along the way? These sorts of things. 
And so it ends up being not very hard once you've created a mental framework like that to, to create um, smallish acceptance tests that pull the framework together. And it's also very, very easy, trivial even, to test a microservice when it's truly a microservice. Uh, and then, honestly, the way that, that I approach testing at any other level is measure aggressively in real time. Um, and when I say measure, I mean stuff like the normal things like performance and memory usage, but also domain events that you care about. You know, if you're creating a task management system and no one's creating any tasks in it, you know that there's a problem, for example. So measure aggressively in real time and then create a system so that you can deploy in waves and you can see what the effects of these deployments are on your measurements. Um, if you do that, then yeah, you're sort of testing in production, but ultimately that's the only real way with, uh, with normal systems and the compromises that we have in the business world, at least to, to ensure that things are correct is to actually run them with real users on their real, in their real contexts in production. So we did a lot of that and we would put in alerting so that we could see when issues were coming up with the various metrics that we cared about uh, and then just carefully deploy in waves and, and roll back if there's an issue. So if I manage to create a system where I can replace the different parts of it, um, how can I ensure that the system itself isn't monolithic and difficult to replace? Mm, interesting. So the parts are easy to replace, but the system itself is difficult to replace. That's your fear. Is that right? I think so. I mean, it's it, it's just the same thing. Eventually, the hardware will probably be out of date. Um, mm -hmm. So what happens when that happens? Well, my my first answer to that is I would love for everyone to have that problem. You know, like imagine if that's all we complained about is man, the hardware is obsolete and we have to rewrite the software system because it won't run anymore. Uh, but, you know, that's not the problem we're having these days, usually, partially because it takes so long for hardware to go obsolete on most of the systems that we work on. Um, but mostly because our systems are so brittle that they die long before any hardware would go out of date. Uh, that said... Part of me says I don't care, like let, let that be the problem. Um, but another part of me knows that if you're able to change things all the time, you're able to change all the components of something, then you know, think about what components might be. Well, some of the components would be the things that talk to the hardware, the things that talk to databases, which is sort of also sort of like a form of a hardware abstraction layer. Um, you could replace all those components over time. And so you might be able to migrate a system from obsolete hardware platforms onto new hardware platforms more readily and perhaps never have to throw away the system if you do it in, in this sort of idealistic way that everything is extremely decoupled, made up of tiny parts, and you're constantly changing it all the time. And when I say all the time, I mean you're really throwing away code in a radical sense every time you change. Like imagine every time you, you have to enhance a piece of code or there's a bug, you have to throw away the component, whatever it is, and start over. 
that would be the level of uh, granularity in a, in a radical, probably probably too radical sense. So if you're doing that kind of replacement of components, then I would bet that it's likely that you could you could uh, evolve an entire system from platform to platform, from database to database, even internet protocols changing anything. It's probably decoupled enough. Um, you've talked a lot about this application you built for Wonderlist. Uh, is uh, how long ago did you deploy that for the first time? Um, well, so when I went to Wonderlist, it was 2013, the beginning of 2013, and uh, we had we had an old architecture that didn't really work that well at the time. We had just released Wonderlist two, and uh, it was a very popular application. The, the service in the back end was down for like 48 hours straight when it got launched because the, the back end couldn't deal with it. But it was shortly after that that uh, along with a company called Dinport in, uh, based out of Hamburg, we implemented the first versions of immutable infrastructure kind of ideas, even with our old failing architecture. And then over the course of a year and a half or so, we brought the old system back to life enough to, to keep us going for a while and then completely re-architected and rewrote everything and deployed it in the middle of 2014. And it was at that point that we had this radically uh, distributed, um, very, very heterogeneous system that we created with an architecture that maps to these ideas around biological metaphor. Is the system still running? It is, yeah, and it's it's kind of funny. We were acquired uh, by Microsoft about a year later, and in in the scope of that work, we've been touching a lot of other things instead of the core Wonderlist infrastructure since then. Um, and for long periods of time, we have not had to do any maintenance on the back end, um, and therefore we haven't changed the back end, which is kind of interesting. So for, from one perspective. I was really proud. Uh, in fact, we, when we went through the technical due diligence for the acquisition, which is a, a process that typically happens when a tech company buys another tech company for their for their technology, uh, one of the things that we had to talk about and answer with the assessors slash auditors is, if you were to leave this thing sitting and just running, how long would it be before it died? Which I thought was a really fascinating question. And my answer was, I don't know, of course, but probably a long time because it sort of takes care of itself, self heals, you know, things restart if they're not going well and that sort of thing. And um, turned out to be true. The system ran for a long time. And then there was a piece of database maintenance that we didn't do that resulted in an outage. Uh, and we didn't do it because we just weren't looking at the system and, you know, we were focusing on some new things that we were building. When that happened, though, it resulted in uh, some changes we had to make to sort of work around that problem that was created. I'm, I know I'm skipping the details, but imagine the database is locked up and, and you need to do something sort of heroic to, to get around it. Um, we found that because we had not changed the system in quite some time, 
it was actually very hard to change. And it's not just because we didn't know how anymore, though that was actually part of it. Honestly, if you don't touch something all the time, you forget how it works. Um, but stuff like uh, software dependencies external to the system, like for the build to work, stopped working in some mm -hmm. cases. And uh, it really just underscored to me the need to constantly be changing something. If you want, if you want to be able to change something, you have to change it all the time. And uh, I, I hope to not make that mistake again. Even when a system is working really well, you still need to keep it moving. Um, kind of like if you're a healthy person and you just lay in bed all day for weeks on end, it's probably going to make you unhealthy. Did you did you then fix it and now it's running again? It is, yes. Okay. Yeah, it was it was painful. Uh, and uh, yeah, and now we're changing it a little more often as well. But I hope never have to have to do that again. That was, that was a bad couple of days. <laughs> um, you mentioned the term immutable infrastructure. Uh, can you tell me what that is? Yeah. Um, so to motivate the term a little bit, um, going back in time, I used to be a system administrator full time when that was a more normal thing for people to be. And uh, I remember being really proud once when I did like uptime on a Unix box that I was managing and it was up for well over a year. I think we had started it up and installed everything on it and then ended up deploying, you know, new applications and it never went down, never had to be rebooted. I thought, wow, this is this is really cool. This thing's running so long and working. But I also remember feeling like, oh man, what happens if it goes down now? Like, can I make? Will it actually restart? Okay, I don't know. I haven't tested that. Um, what if it completely dies? How will I rebuild it? What have I done to this thing? You know, I've logged into this so many times. It's it's scary. Um, and so. Most of us were feeling that way in the industry that we're doing system administration. And naturally, a class of tools came along that solved some of these problems. Not the restarting part, but that one's less scary than how do I make sure the system is in a state that I understand and can be reproduced. And so tools like Chef and Puppet came along to solve that problem. Um, but even then... You still have these systems that last for a long time. Um, typically, they're big systems. And uh, if you need to add more of them, it's sort of an expensive, slow, clunky process. And so I started thinking, why not take this biological metaphor and apply it to systems as well? Because you know when you start up a new system, you know exactly what's on it for sure. Because you were the one that did it. You just now did it. You haven't forgotten. Typically, when you start up a new system from scratch, it's going to work. Whereas when it runs for a long time, it might not. Maybe it has memory leaks. Maybe it gets hacked. Who knows? Um, so the state of a system that that is somewhat correct, and I say that meaning not formally correct, but somewhat correct, a normal business system might degrade over time, even when you're not touching it. Uh, so why not just always have new systems? If a new system that you just started has all these great qualities of 
definitely, definitely working, known state, etc. Why not just optimize for that? And that's what immutable infrastructure is about. It's about uh, always having new systems. And whenever you need to change something, rather than change an existing one, you throw away the old system and you replace it with a new one. Which in the 90s, when I was doing uptime on my servers, would not have been something that was tenable because you would literally have to throw away the server and restart or or have some extra ones and you know go install the operating system on it from scratch. It would take a long time. Um, but like, you know, what if you never install an operating system patch on on a system? And and therefore you don't need to worry about what happens when you do that without rebooting. Like, does that actually work with the existing running software? Do you need to restart the services, et cetera? Uh, what if you never actually upgrade your application on an existing system? So you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to think so much about those restart scripts and the way they play together. But instead, whenever I need to deploy my app, I just deploy whole new servers and replace replace the old ones with the new ones. So you have this fresh approach. And it also, like I said, it gives you the, the same concept as cellular regeneration again, where the system as a whole is a collection of running machines and on those machines running processes. But I can throw them away and, and replace them as often as I want. And in fact, the more often I do it within some limits, the better the system is going to run and the more I can trust it. So um, a lot of people will talk about these sorts of systems, like the, the words immutable infrastructure have been unfortunately mis, uh, misattributed to Docker and the likes. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of like when Ruby on Rails came out, I always thought that name was silly because it's really Rails on Ruby. It's backward. Um, and it's the same with Docker and immutable infrastructure. Docker is an implementation of, a, of immutable infrastructure ideas along with other stuff, but it isn't immutable infrastructure itself. It benefits from that concept. Um, so you could do immutable infrastructure. You could even do it literally by you know hiring a whole bunch of people, like say you hire a thousand people to stand in a data center and you press buttons and you have them reinstall operating systems when they when they get a message. You know, that could be immutable infrastructure too. It would just be slower and more expensive. So in um, in your uh, Wonderless application, what were the servers that you were throwing away? Did you use Docker? We didn't, no. Um, we, we created our system before Docker was really well known and probably before most people were using it in production at all. Uh, I heard about it after we, after we did the first releases of the system. Um, what we were doing was we were on AWS and we were creating uh, new EC2 instances. And we we had a whole system for creating machine images. They call them AMIs on, on AWS so that we could, for every new change, create a machine image for that change that had all of the operating system and application code and then start and stop as many of them as we wanted flexibly or elastically, as they like to say. Um, nowadays, a lot of programs are being deployed into the cloud. Um, and one thing that I find interesting is that the cloud itself is um, really a long-running server. Um, there's the example of the S3 
instances at Amazon, uh, the outage we had a couple weeks ago, um, was because it was based on some services that were provided by Amazon um, that had not been restarted for three years or so. Um, so would would something like immutable infrastructure work for a cloud company or is it at that point not possible? Uh, yeah, it would definitely work for a cloud company. And and I'm pretty sure, to be fair to Amazon, the, they were some of the pioneers of these sorts of concepts. They didn't call it immutable infrastructure. But um, I remember hearing, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago from um, Amazon about how they were creating these tiny services and teams had to maintain them themselves and they could replace them at any time as long as they adhered to some rules. Um, the It's probably not quite right to say that uh, the cloud are is a long-running server. It's more a long-running system, the way we were talking about it before. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's multiple long-running systems that make up you know, one abstract concept of cloud. Uh, so it's probably similar to the way to what happened at Wonderlist, except at a much larger, more devasca- devastating scale. That they probably, I bet the people on AWS who were working on S3, they knew this thing was up for a long time, and I bet that they were afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's probably why it wasn't restarted. If this was the case, I don't, you know, I don't know what they were doing, and I also didn't see the uh, postmortem on it, but. Um, I do believe that if you start thinking of systems as being immutable and then you add on the concept of, of cellular re- re- regeneration for uh, for system health uh, biologically, I believe you're going to end up with a good system if you do that uh, and a, a safer system. And had they been doing that, you know, way easier said than done, this specific error probably wouldn't have happened if it truly was about a system that hadn't been restarted in a long time. Um, I can't say that it would solve every problem that they would have and it would maybe introduce others. But yeah, it, it strikes me as an instance of what you try to avoid by doing immutable infrastructure correctly. Yeah. To be fair to Amazon, they did have a serv- they had a service in place what, that could restore the whole service. Um, it just took longer than they thought because they hadn't started it for about a day. I mean, no, sorry, yeah. they hadn't started it for three years or so. Um, but right. then they, they then once the, the server crashed, uh, it restored itself. It just took about 24 hours um, when everyone yeah. was freaking out and didn't know what was happening. That's a miracle, really, yeah. to think about it. Something yeah. at the scale of S3 yeah. to only take 24 hours to recover yeah. from something like that. Yeah, I can link Someone the, did a really the report in, in the show notes. I thought it was a really interesting case. Yeah. Um, one of the things is when I hear the, the Docker, um, I personally always cringe a little bit because it sounds very buzzwordy. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm always curious to about how much um, of a risk it is to base your entire system on a technology like Docker. I don't think it's a huge risk if you think about it right. You know, like, like if you think Docker is immutable infrastructure and then you implement Docker... You know, if you're one of those people who just equates them, then you probably are not holistically thinking about the system and your tech choices uh, to keep you safe. 
But if Docker is just an implementation of a pattern that you want to uh, take advantage of, then I don't think it's that risky because you're likely going to separate yourself and decouple yourself and your system from that specific implementation detail to some extent. Uh, like we used to talk about whether we should go to Docker at Wonderlist, and I always said, yes, we should. It's just not the highest priority right now. But I see Docker for us in that context as absolutely a cost and deployment time optimization um, layer. That's it. Because everything else about the way we did things would stay exactly the same. But instead of booting up an Amazon AMI, we would have a set of running systems and we would kill and then start Docker containers. So they would happen faster and more would happen on the same machines with, with better protections around them than you'd normally get. Otherwise, our system is still our system and Docker is just a tool. And I think if you're, if you're implementing technology that way, where you have a point of view and the tools you use fit or don't fit into that point of view, you're going to be in a better situation than if you let the tool dictate your point of view and you sort of follow its uh, philosophy blindly. Um, but as a software developer, um, I don't have that much control over the system as a whole. Um, is there anything I can do? Like, th th are there um, concepts from this immutable infrastructure that I can apply to my software? Um, or am I kind of just um, at the mercy of the system architect who's telling me what to do? Well, I hope you're not, because that wouldn't, that wouldn't be a fun way to work. But uh, yeah, so you mean like you're an individual developer yeah. and maybe there's some sort of like technical guru on your team who's making all the, the calls about how things are structured. Um, yeah, there still is. Like basically the goals here, my goal when I talk about all this stuff is to create software that's easier to change, more fun to work on, and doesn't have to be fully replaced at any point in the future uh, unless you want to, you know, unless the business dictates it. But the, there should never be a technical reason you have to throw it away. And so if you think about those goals and then layer on the ideas around immutability, um, in order to make something immutable, and let's talk about code instead of running servers for a moment. You know, the, the crazy idea I had where if you need to change something, you have to throw away the unit of code that it's in and rewrite it. If you were to embed this idea in your head, don't do it necessarily because it is radical, but think about things that way. How would it make you change how you structure the code you write on a daily basis? Well, I think it would cause you to um, be very, very careful about coupling. So uh, what language might you be working in? Java or something like that? Um, yeah, among yeah. others. So let's say you're wor Java. working in Java then, because um, a lot of people do. Uh, and you have to write, I, I don't know, a new method in a class or something. I would shy away from relying on instance variables if I could help it. This is going to sound stupid and like way too specific. But when you use instance variables in the class, you are coupling yourself to 
those instance variables, what their values are, and perhaps temporal coupling of what they might have been set to outside the context of the class. So you're less likely to be thread safe even. And thread safety as an issue is often about coupling um, or maybe always about coupling, depending on how you define it. So rather than working outside the scope of the method I'm writing, I would try to keep everything in that scope. And I would try to keep that scope as small and exclusive as possible, therefore reducing coupling. Because you think about it, if, if your Java method was essentially a pure function, and a pure function is one where there are no side effects and you know, there are a, given a set of inputs, you're always going to get the same outputs. Uh, those are very, very easy to change. They're even mathematically provable. So if you, if you try to al always write your code as close as possible to pure functions, it will change how you think. It will make every piece of code that you write more changeable. And it's not just limited to instance variables. It could be, you know, some version of globals like singletons. When you use that pattern, you're essentially creating a global variable. Um, any reference to a class or method outside of the current class or method you're in, obviously, is more coupling. Um, classes that are small are easier to replace than classes that are large. So it's all about limiting scope and limiting size of things that might need to be changed. Now, imagine that you're the only developer, and this would be a really stupid setup, but, and, and I'm sorry if this is the case, I shouldn't say things like this, but you're the only developer, and then you have one person who's just the architect. So that person defines how things work, and you implement all the code. If the architect was an idiot and had no concept of how to create a good system that could survive for a long time, but you followed rules like I was just talking about all the time in your code as the only developer... I believe you might actually create, even accidentally, create a system that has the properties I was talking about through your individual actions day to day. So we should just do functional programming all the time? Well, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you can create bad coupling and functional programming too. And so it's more that I, I hope that we all understand the benefits when there are benefits of functional programming and try to apply them everywhere. Don't try to do functional programming everywhere necessarily, but you know, if something can be a pure function, it's going to be better if it's a pure function. Uh, and if something, and if you can reduce coupling and reduce scope and never, uh, never change the value of something. So, you know, you're, you don't have variables, but you just have immutable values. That's uh, another thing I should it's have like mentioned. Like music for my ears. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you don't you don't have to be doing functional programming to do that. You could do lovely Java and and even idiomatic Java style, but still be thinking about immutability and small scopes and you know all these sorts of things. Yeah, I'm the person who always makes everything public final um, and doesn't let anyone add setters to my classes. So. It sounds nice. good to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to work on your project. <laughs> yeah, we try to keep as everything as immutable as possible. Um, I read your book, um, and you mentioned that you had uh, a mentor who told you three things that you should learn. Um, mm, yeah, his name was Ken. <laughs> um, if you could give 
three things that somebody who's just getting started out um, as a software developer, uh, could you list three things that you think they should learn? Uh, yeah, it's a little different now, and, and it would depend on what sort of developer. So like at one level, I would say you should really learn how to do programming on some sort of mobile device like iOS or Android, and you should learn back-end programming, and then you should get really good at one programming language, ideally a functional programming language. That's what I would say. Um, but that that's like, hey, I want to be a software developer. What should I do? Which is usually not the level of specificity that people come with, you know. So if you want to be a back-end developer, I might tell you something else. I might say, uh, get really deep into one of these ecosystems of, you know, like, the HashiCorp stuff, all the different things around that, for example, or the Docker ecosystem, everything around that as one, then get really good at a functional programming language, something like Haskell. I would go hardcore and uh, and very different from everything else, and then get really good at something like JavaScript, maybe. It really depends. But you know, usually what I will try to do is is carve things up into three tracks that don't overlap very much. Now the two programming languages sort of do, but I, I mentioned JavaScript because of its ubiquity coupled with the fact that it is ultra dynamic. And then Haskell is like ultra functional, static, pure, and will make you think very differently than JavaScript. And so that's sort of the, the concept of having three tracks that teach you very independent um, things that, that bolster each other but uh, yeah, I don't know if I could just generically come up with a list of three things for any new software developer. Okay, yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for the time you took to answer all my questions. And thank you, it was fun. Yeah, I had fun too. Um, thank you also to all the listeners. Until next time. <laughs>